I always told our agents, make your clients think they're your friends, but remember that they're not. Yet it would be my clients who would stay loyal for the most part and my friends who would betray me. Jay Maloney, the agent I thought of as a son and as my eventual successor, would join the agency's posse of young Turks who disowned me after I left CAA. Michael Eisner, my great friend who ran Disney, would hire me as his number two, then publicly humiliate me and fire me after 14 months. And Ron Meyer, the blood brother I started CAA with, would leave to take a big job at Universal after I'd negotiated for both of us to go there and then disparage me all over town for 20 years. I made it my life's work to understand people, to grasp what made them tick. I'd been certain that I was too wary to misplace my trust and too smart to be duped. So I'd like to think that these betrayals were random and flagrantly unwarranted and that I was the victim of some perverse instinct that destroys all human intimacy. I'd like to think that the problem was just that the tools and strategies I'd used to get to the top inevitably created resentment, even among those who shared in my success. That everyone hates a winner. That just because I sought money and power and intimidated everyone to get them, it didn't change me. But I did change, of course. Those whom the gods wish to destroy, they first give a gift. Okay, so that is from the prologue of the book that I want to talk to you about today, which is Who is Michael Ovitz by Michael Ovitz. So this book is going to be probably a little different from... uh, what we normally discuss. So yeah, we're going to cover his early life. We're going to cover what made him want to become an entrepreneur. We're going to cover some of the strategies uh, that he used. But a lot of this book is what he's discussing here in the prologue. Uh, Mistakes. He's very honest and and open about uh, the mistakes he made. And it almost all comes down to not really business mistakes, but mistakes with people, which I find so fascinating. And I think what I'm saying now will make more sense once... Once uh, we get towards the end of the podcast, too, and you see kind of the whole arc. Um, Okay, so before we jump into the book, just a few things I want to go over with you. First of all, my name is David. Welcome to Founders if this is your first time listening. The concept of this podcast is pretty straightforward. Every week, I read a biography or an autobiography of an entrepreneur, and I just share uh, the ideas that I learned that I thought were interesting. This is not meant to be a review or a summary of the book by any means, just things that I wanted to remember for myself. So a lot of uh, times when I'm reading, I le- I make a lot of highlights and then uh, notes as well. Uh, so then I can go back later and, and remember everything I learned. And uh, if you're interested in um, getting this book after you listen to this podcast, or if you want to see any of the, I think we're up to like 50 books now that we've covered so far through the podcast, a great way to do that is go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash founders podcast. Not only will you see all the books I've done in the past, but you'll also see uh, that book next week, uh, next week's book early because a, a lot of, a few of you have emailed saying you wanted to make this kind of like a book club. So that's uh, a way to do that. Um, the second thing is if you want to get in touch with me, um, this is another idea I got directly from you guys. Uh, best, uh, best way to get in touch with me is just uh, you can use, uh, you can find me on Twitter. It's at David Sunra one. 
And I'll leave, obviously, the links and everything I, I talk about in the show notes and at founderspodcast.com. And, uh, oh, the, the show also has its own Twitter feed. Um, and this Twitter feed, I just publish quotes from past podcasts that I like or that I want to remember, and that's at Founders Podcast. And last but not least, in addition to taking a lot of notes and highlights on books um, on entrepreneurship, I take a lot of notes and highlights on podcasts about entrepreneurship, specifically directly from uh, entrepreneurs' own brains. So if you want to get on my private email list and you want to see those notes, you can do that at foundersnotes.co. Okay, so I want to jump back into the book. And this, I think, is going to be a little bit more chaotic um, than our normal, like the normal podcasts that I do. And so I'm just going to jump around. Uh, some, some of these are entire stories that I found interesting, and some are just random quotes or random ideas. Uh, I would say this more so than most other books um, is going to follow more of like a barbell effect where I'm going to spend a lot of time. Most of the, the podcast is going to be about uh, his early life, then his early first few jobs, and then starting the company. And then once that gets up to be successful, I skip over a bunch of that because in, in general, I'm just more interested in how things are started, not how they're run once they are successful. And then we're going to get spend a lot of time in the end of the book where he's going to deal with a lot of regrets and like I just read in the prologue, a lot of betrayals. And there's just a lot of lessons. Mike's going to teach us a lot of lessons. I don't know about business, but I think about he's in his 70s when he's writing this book and the i'm always fascinated by what people value and what they regret when they're near the end of their life so we're gonna learn a lot about that today but first i found this this uh few sentences in the prologue that i found uh i I just want to remember so i want to share this with you real quick and this is the importance of, of having a profound sense of belief and how you basically start uh create something from nothing and so he's going to use Hollywood because that's the industry that he was in. But I think this applies to nearly everything, business or otherwise. Nothing in Hollywood is anything until it's something. And the only way to, to make it something is with a profound display of belief. If you keep insisting that a shifting set of inco- incoher- incoherent possibilities is a movie, it eventually becomes one. Okay, so I'm going to skip ahead and I want to just jump. I'm going to I'm going to jump right into his early life, his first jobs and then finding his first love. And this just this takes place over a few pages and um I think it's kind of a way to lay the foundation to kind of understand Mike and why he is the way he is. And don't get mistaken, he's a very very controversial figure. Okay. So he says, my dad's dream was to open his own liquor store. You need to be in charge of your destiny, he drummed into me. It's no good working for somebody else. While I love my father, I hated his boxed-in life. Like many who had grown up in hard times, he feared risk. My mother's mother, this is interesting, he calls her Sarah. This is his grandmother, but he never refers to her as that. He just calls her Sarah. I don't know if there's any, if we should read into that or not. My mother's mother, Sarah, was a blunt, blunt-spoken widow who lived with us for years. She paid attention to me and seemed to think I was special. She was my second mother, and I felt horribly conflicted when she'd tell me, you can be better than your father. Sarah kept dosing me with its poison until I was 14, when my father finally kicked her out of the house. 
By then, her incantations, a dark version of the immigrant's creed that in America you could be anything you want, had cast their spell. Instead of trying to emulate my father, a kind and loving man, I would be what Sarah expected of me. I would succeed at all costs. She was depressed, of course, sunk in her own miseries. So I'd save her by taking extraordinarily me- extraordinary measures to reward her faith in me. So first of all, there's a few things going on here. Um, the, I, I, I like how he diagnosed. He's like, well, she's obviously miserable because she spends her entire time. And I'm skipping over a bunch of this. She's, she just basically talks crap about everybody. She's a perpetually unhappy person, which is uh, really weird when you when you factor into this is who was paying the most attention to Mike when he was younger. But also this thing, uh, what he talks about, he's like, I, I'm going to, instead of being a nice and loving man, I'm going to succeed at all costs. I'll tell you right now, which I, was something I didn't know when I was reading these first these words to begin with, I... I I'm pretty sure he almost comes out and, and um, admits as much, but he definitely infers that this was not the right route for his his um, his life. There's a lot of darkness in this book, um, not only between like the way these people treat each other in the industry, which is pathetic, but um, like the the lo- he he says, and, and I'm going to re- read a bunch of these sections to you, but he talks about losing his humanity over and over again. And I've read a lot of autobiographies of entrepreneurs for this podcast. Um, a lot of them are written around the same age he is, somewhere around the 60s and 70s. You have people like Sam Walton or Phil Knight reflecting back on their lives. There's never been as much darkness as in this book. So, so make of that uh, what you will. All right, so he says... Um, now we're going to jump into some of his first jobs. And one thing I admire about Mike is, you know, he had a, a fantastic, um, fantastic work ethic that you even see um, from a young age. He says, at nine, I got a paper route and raced my Schwinn bike through the neighborhood. Then I asked for a second route, cutting my free time to the bone. Um, so it's funny. He mentions when he meets his wife later on that she liked, she described the way he's, he, uh, his lifestyle as, um, as squeezing the very last drop out of a tooth of toothpaste <laughs> that he would, he, he never liked to waste any time. And I'll, I'll share with you his schedule later on, which is, which is pretty extreme. So he says, I was a head shorter than my classmates and annoyingly curious. So I was bullied in elementary school. My father had saved me from older bullies once in the stairway of our building back in Chicago, but he wasn't around a recess or in the deadly hours right after school, uh, right after school let out when it was open season on outliers. I absolutely hated that feeling of powerlessness, of cowering and being craven and hoping just to pass unnoticed. I couldn't bear it. And we're going to see a little bit of what's interesting here is you kind of become what you hate. And he even makes that um, statement later on because he becomes somewhat of a bully, somewhat of a person that's comfortable um, with violence. Which is again something that that is left out of a lot of the books that that uh, we read, but we know is kind of a part of life. And I, I, again, I think is in a regret of his move now. Um, okay, so he says I always stood out academically, even if none of my teachers took particular notice or encouraged me. I read everything I could, but my favorites were biographies of successful men: Andrew Carnegie, Winston Churchill, Nathan Rothschild. Um, if anybody has a way to get in touch with Mike, you should send him the link to Founders Podcast. <laughs> I also did a lot of drawing and model making. I wasn't a gifted draftsman or builder, 
but I'd construct model boats and planes in my room and entertain dreams of commanding flotillas and squadrons. So that's something that he puts into real life, and uh, we'll get into like how he used history and other influences to build a culture of CA, which I found particularly fascinating. Um, now we're going to get into how he finds his first love. At nine, I discovered motion pictures. Four blocks from my house, behind a chain-link fence and a security shack, sat a place of mystery. The back lot of RKO Pictures, the studio owned by Howard Hughes. The first time I eluded the watchman and snuck through a hole in the fence, I came upon another world. Mounds of lighting equipment, cameras, microphones, cables, and rows and rows upon of false, fr- of false fronted buildings. From old western towns to gritty urban streets. Hundreds of actors in makeup, cowboys, Indians, policemen, spacemen, and hundreds more people in the street clothes who peered through lenses, strung lights, hammered and hauled, and ran about until director yelled, action. I was hooked. My parents desperately wanted me to become a doctor, but movies became my obsession. I loved Fort Apache. I guess that's the name of a movie. An RKO Western about the cavalry and a great leader who overrules an incompetent one. I became obsessed with building forts and with the Spartan idea of the phalanx, the battle formation in which you're only as strong as the guy on your left. I was also impressed by, by an Errol Flynn Western. There's a lot of names in the book. Don't, I'll tell you when the names are important to remember. Most of them are not. And a lot of them I just straight up omit. I mean, this guy had there's probably 500 different names in this book. Okay, so it's uh, an Errol Flynn Western where he drew a line in the dirt during a mutiny and said, you're either with me or against me. That formulation, you're totally in or totally out, became my mantra. It helped me enormously later, and it hurt me in equal measure because it didn't allow for shades of gray. Most of life turns out to be shades of gray. Okay, so now you're starting to see what I, I mean. We're still in the first chapter of the book. And you're going to see, he's, he's going to tell us like these ideas that he thinks are valuable, but you're going to hear this, a lot of this, where it's like, damn, I, I messed up here. This is a mistake I made. I wish I didn't do that. Um, and, you know, that's something, it's not really something you want to see in a, in, a, in a human life. Like, I think you should look up to people in the sense that uh, you can learn from them, but you got to apply these lessons like in your own way. And I just can't help but feel... Well, I, 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 right before I got to the last like two chapters of the book, I'm like, oh my God, I can't turn this into a podcast. It's like, it gets a little depressing here. I wonder if this guy is even happy. There, there is a, uh, a, a better ending towards the end. Um, he does actually find an industry that seems to be more like in line with, with being a human and not just being a ruthless cutthroat like the uh, Hollywood agent industry was in the 70s and 80s. Okay, and it probably still is today. Um, okay, so we're still back into, uh, he's still working during high school. He says, by then I was working eight-hour shifts as a box boy at our neighborhood Piggly Wiggly. I was working 4 p.m. until midnight, saving toward a car in college and thinking about my future. Um, I'm skipping over this part, but he got he figured out a way to become student body president. And he fit, after initially failing, he, he learned some tricks that were... Basically, he, he, he learned by how to network and how to expand his circle and how to get people to like him, which is also something I found a, a little unbecoming because he, he describes himself multiple times as like a chameleon. And um, maybe that's what you had to do in, in his business. I just find that people that don't have any sense of self or people I try to avoid. 
Being student body president made it made me a member of the Encino Rotary Club. So I met months a, once a month with the Rotarians, which I guess are members of this club. They were car dealers and insurance agents who made something of themselves. They were no smarter or more hardworking than my dad, but they had something he lacked, a college degree. That had given them options, and now they composed the local power structure. But I didn't want to just be part of a local power structure. Eight miles from where I grew up stood the mansions of Beverly Hills. I'd stare at them as we drove to family dinners. That was when I began to hate the valley. The valley is where, uh, where he grew up in, the, the section of Los Angeles that he grew up in. Okay, so he's saying, I hate the valley, which lack museums, institutions, and a cultural center. Any real stimulus for my brain. In the valley, people grew up carrying a football under their arms. I wish I had grown up in New York where people grew up carrying a newspaper. This grudge against my surroundings, this sense that I had been raised in the wrong nest, like a cuckoo's egg, fueled me when I began my working life. And this is, I think, really important when you talk about like the motivations, like what, what, um, what is the fuel that, that causes you to be such a driven person to want to start a company or to want to succeed in whatever endeavor. And he says, um, I always felt one step inferior to the people around me and one step superior. I wasn't as creative or cultured as they were, but I was a lot smarter and more hardworking than most of them. Insecurity and ambition make a powerful cocktail. So after finding that, studi uh, finding that studio by his house, he's, uh, he develops a way to get a job. Um, as one of the like the tour guides like if you go to a hollywood set they give they give uh like tours of um, like all the shows being produced and the sound stage and etc so this is what he was doing back in i think this is in the early 70s now so he says uh he's gonna make some important points here that i that i agree with wholeheartedly the other guides worked from nine to six but i came at seven each morning and stayed until nine at night Universal owned the last full-fledged working lot. That's the company he's working for. And I walked its 400 acres end-to-end, -end, which is interesting. He almost becomes the CEO of Universal about 20 years later. I read and reread and underlined my studio guide as if, it were, if I, as if I were cramming for a final, writing out lists of questions for executives and technicians, and keeping a notebook full of the answers. At the end of each interview, I arranged to come back to observe. I had carte blanche at the busiest film and television studio in the world, and I was getting paid for it. What I learned at Universal, the way glorious films blossom out of an intricate mesh of mundane practicalities, enthralls me still. So what he's talking about there is, from an outsider perspective, like the end uh, product of what these studios are making are exciting. People uh, all over the world want to pay money to go see them. But yet, if you look at a day-to-day, -day, what he calls an intricate mesh of mundane practicalities, it doesn't look like anything special is happening. Um, but with the magic of uh, coordinated effort and enough time, you can actually produce something magical from something that's mundane. And this is the part that, um, that I wholeheartedly agree with. And he makes, I've never heard it put this way, and I love how he, he, he discusses it. He says, I was a great guide because I believed in the product. By 18, which is his age at the time, I'd absorbed a basic rule for success. Love what you do. And this is especially a great point. Too many people fight their job, a battle they cannot win. Okay, so during this time, uh, 
he gets to observe in real life what we're kind of trying to, to do um, with the podcast. And so this, the note I left myself is the foul-mouthed magnets. And there's a lot of these guys I've heard of before, the people that started studios way back in the day. And I'll eventually get around to reading some of their biographies. But he's, he's interacting with them, with, uh, with them up close. And there's one in particular that he's trying to learn from. So he says, some of us Valley kids follow the studios like boys in New York track the Yankees. I wasn't interested in the stars, but in the process of making pictures and in the people who were truly responsible. All the foul-mouthed magnets who, who founded the modern film business were fascinating. Harry Cohn, Louis B. Meyer, Jack Warner, William Fox. But the one who interested me the most, in part because I worked at his studio and in part because he had the most far-reaching ideas, was Lou Wasserman. Okay, so this is a name you're going to have to remember. He's a really important um, part of this story. I'm going to talk a little bit more about him now. But he winds up hating, <laughs> Lou Wasserman winds up hating um, Mike later on in life. Lou built the town's paramount talent agency. His rules were simple. Tend to the client, dress appropriately, divulge no information about MCA. MCA is the company that he founded. Do your homework and never leave the office without returning every phone call. Cornering the market on movie stars, Lou swung decisive leverage to the talent and their representatives and helped finish off the old studio system. Now, that's an important sentence because Mike literally does the same exact thing 20 years later. Um, and he talks about the, being the difference between uh, the buyers, basically being a pain in the ass for the buyers. So the buyers are the studios, and he winds up um, representing the sellers and increasing the prices that the sellers make, and as a consequence of that, of the buyers have to pay. So this is going to make him a lot of enemies. Later, he brought the Paramount Library of old films when no one thought it was worth a dime. MCA was everywhere, packaging a huge number of TV shows and taking up to 75% of their production costs. The company's reach was so vast, it became known as the octopus. It's find it interesting um, throughout, there's something about human nature that People that didn't know each other, separated by vast distances and, and time, comes up with this, uh, can come up with the same ideas. This idea of calling a company the octopus. Do you remember uh, when I did the podcast on the Banana King, Sam Zamuri? Uh, remember, the company he started to fight, uh, uh, the company he was fighting, I think it was called United Fruit. I don't have it in front of me. Hopefully, I'm remembering it correctly. They, that's how the United Fruit was described. They were described as the octopus. Same situation for Lou's company. And Lou stays in power for a very, very long time, up until I think he's in his 70s, and he actually gets bought out through a deal that um, Mike is actually going to broker. So their paths are going to cross again. And at the time, but what's fascinating and inspiring to me is at the time, Mike is working for Lou at the bottom rung. He's just uh, somebody on Lou's um, uh, lot giving guides, and he actually gives a guide to Lou and a guest one day. Okay. So something I love about Mike and a lot of these stories that we cover is they a lot of them, uh, they have traits that are very common. And so one, a lot of them start from the bottom, meaning bottom of organization or maybe not with a lot of resources. And yet, and they're all really, really hungry for, for knowledge. And so um, I'm going to skip to when he has already graduated school and he's like, okay, I, I need a, an end to the movie industry. 
So he decides to go work for a company that uh, is still in existence today. It's w- relatively well known. It's the, the agency William Morris. And what's fascinating to me about having finished this book now is he starts at the bottom of William Morris, eventually works his way up to the point where he, he's going to gain enough confidence to go on his own. The exact same thing happens in his company. He finds himself at the top of the industry, and then there's young, aggressive people at the bottom that are eventually tales old as time that are eventually going to want the power that Mike possesses, and they basically take it from him. Okay, but we're not there yet. So let's start when he's just at the beginning of his career. Um, so one thing I must say, he was extremely successful at, um, he was in charge, he eventually worked his way up and was in charge of the touring, uh, the studio tours. And he was making $600 a week. And this was in 19, I'm sorry, I said 1970s. It was in the 1960s. So, um, which is a lot of money. His dad made $400 a week and he was making this much money at like, I think 19 years old, 20 years old, something around there. And what he's going to do is rather drastic when you when you factor in how much money he was making. He's going to get agree to get a job at $75 a week. Okay, so it says, Almost everyone at William Morris started in the company's mailroom. After a year or two, trainees were sent to secretarial school for shorthand or speed writing. They came back. So now he's going to describe for us the, like the, the basic hierarchy, the path that you're supposed to follow if you want to succeed at this company and the path that he uh, deliberately circumvents. They came back as agent secretary, and if they did well at that, they became an assistant, then a junior agent, and then finally a senior agent. It could take three years to become a junior agent and four more to start signing your own clients as a senior agent. And more than 80% of the trainees washed out along the way. The way you got ahead at WMA was nepotism. Everybody was somebody's nephew. It was an old, soft, corrupt place. I didn't know anybody. So I needed another way to stand out. I told the head of personnel, I have a proposition for you. I think I can learn all I need to know to become an agent in 120 days. Okay, so instead of waiting three to four years, he says, I can do that in four months. If I can't, I'll give you back everything you paid me. I was aging, aging, okay, so this word's in the book. So agenting him. So it's the, it's basically being an agent before he's an agent. I was agent, agenting, oh my goodness. Okay, you know what I'm trying to say. And he knew it. He broke out laughing. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard, he said. But I'm going to hire you. You start Monday. Oh, I was wrong about the salary. It's actually, he said my salary would be $55 a week. So even less. Okay. I said, I'd like to start tomorrow. I showed up at seven, two hours early to learn my way around the building. So there's more of that drive and and, uh, initiative. People came to rely on me. So he talks about ingratiating himself into the structure and start just going around doing favors to everybody. And as a result, he did this because then eventually what started out as something that he was doing voluntarily, they would, he kind of understood human nature very, very young too. They would eventually come to rely on that and then he could use that as leverage. So they came to rely on me and raised my salary to $75 a week. I was embarrassed by the low pay embarrassed that I could take Judy, this is his wife, out only to cheap, uh, to cheap restaurants. But Judy gave me the line I would use later when I recruited people to entry-level jobs at CAA. You're investing in your life. I despised the mailroom, but I fell in love with the world it served. Working for William Morris was a means to an end, to get close to our creative clients, the people who did things I could not do myself. And we're going to see uh, his, you know, he had this, this early ambition. He says, I aspired to build my own company someday. 
but that was in the distant future. And on the very next page, he does something that's really, really smart. Remember, he has this, this unquenchable thirst for knowledge and understanding the industry, the industries, I should say, that he's operating in. So he said, remember, this is way before uh, computer, like personal computers. We had a file room the length of a basketball court. It was lined with steel cabinets, the hard drives of the era, all packed with 70 years worth of manila folders. I viewed those files as an encyclopedia of entertainment. And then this is how, um, again, he starts doing favors for people so he can get access, something he does his entire career. So he says, I helped the woman who ran the file room. Her name's Mary. Um, and I brought her little gifts, a box of candy or a scarf. One day I said, you know, I'd love to read some of those files. She told me to make myself at home. Within a week, she was letting me stay on after she left. Then she gave me the key. While other trainees waited to be told what to do, and uh, excuse me, when other trainees, while other trainees waited to be told what to do and read and learn, I entered Mary's domain each morning at 7 a.m. and every evening after work. For 10 weeks, I made my way from A to Z through the client files and the network and studio deals. I jotted down questions for Sam Sachs, who is the head of television legal affairs, who was charmed by my interest and lent me a tape of a talk he'd given at USC on contract law and entertainment. So this is a precursor to podcasts, huh? I played it at home and came back with more questions. He gave me nine more tapes. So that's just a fascinating thing. Um, this this talk, so I think this demonstrates uh, something that I've come to know very well, is like the value of compression. He basically learned the key ideas of 70 years of entertainment history in two and a half months. Um, and then it didn't stop there. Okay, so um, this guy, Sam, kind of takes him under his wing. He, he has this idea where he's like, okay, Sam, I know Sam's schedule because Sam is real tight with the guy running the agency and he has the same schedule every day where he works till 6.30 and the guy that's running the agency, I forgot his name, that's not important, uh, comes and asks him to go to dinner. So he goes to dinner and then he comes back and finishes up a little work. So Mike would hang out. He'd be the only one in the office. He'd set himself up in a in a cubicle so Sam would see that he's there. Then when Sam would inevitably come out of his office, he'd be like, oh, I need help. Oh, no one's here. Can you do me a favor? And Mike's like, yeah, okay, cool. And he does this for a long time. So now he's jumped up. He surpassed everybody else he started with. And now he's basically... Um, the right hand person of the the right hand of the person running the company, if that makes sense. And this greatly accelerates how fast he's able to um, to accomplish what he wants. And there's actually a uh, I just worked on another podcast that I'm doing for the the Misfits feed for the people that are that are supporting this podcast on a monthly basis, and and it's titled "There Is No Speed Limit." Um, it has nothing to do with Mike. Uh, it's somebody else that was heavily, hugely influenced on me. But I, it's funny that like I see the same um, traits in Mike that you do in a lot of these entrepreneurs. So he says, after I started working for Sam, I conceived a new long-term goal. I wanted to run William Morris. So think about that. This guy has ambitions like the size of the, the moon. It's crazy. After seven, the reason I say that is not because I, it, that he couldn't accomplish it, but he's he's really, really young when he's doing this. Um, he's only been, in, first of all, he's, what, 21, 22 years old, and thinking, I'm going to run this place one day, which says a little bit about his personality. But two, he's only been there for a few months, and you're going to see that now because he says, after seven months at William Morris, when I was 22, okay, there's age, I was promoted to junior agent, a title so demeaning we'd do away with it at CAA. 
my pay doubled to $150 a week. Though my promotion came in record time, I had missed my own deadline by three months. And this sentence is, I think, important to understand, Mike, because it's it feels like he's like running a, a race against an invisible clock. He says, I felt like I had to catch up before the world got away from me. He is not very satisfied. Somebody's going to be placated easily. Uh, he does it in record time, years before most people do, and yet he's still kind of mad about it. Um, okay, so I'm going to skip over a lot of the stuff because it's just like BS politics at William Morris. But I want to get to the part where he makes he makes some good ideas about branding, um, not being standard in any way, and then the, we get the genesis of the thought of like, hey, I could I could do this myself. What if I just start my own company? So he's an agent right now for William Morris. He says you need a persona as an agent, something that made you unique. I had heard that Sam Cohn, the famously rumpled New York agent, cut holes in his sweater to make them look moth-eaten. Sam's persona was the absent-minded genius. Ron, now Ron's a very important um, name to remember. I referenced him at the intro. He's, I mean, he's going to call him his best friend here. He's his best friend and the person he starts the company with and also somebody that he feels betrayed him and they didn't talk for 20 years. Okay. Sam's persona was the absent-minded genius. Ron was the best friend and confident and confidant. The I'll fix all your problems guy. I had given a lot of thought to my persona. There were three options. Number one was a standard agent, the smoozer, the gladhander. But I didn't want to be standard in any way. Number two uh, was Leland Hayward, an absolute gent. Um, if a client wanted to leave, Leland would let her go without a word of protest or a hint of rancor. Everyone loved him. That was incredibly appealing, but I sensed that Leland's persona wasn't the right fit for me. Believe it or not, in those days, I was affable and considerate, with never a bad word about anyone. But you need to pick a persona you can inhabit without strain. This kind of echoes what the, the quote that I always talk about that Ray Dalio talks about in his book, Principles. Like, you have to be who you are. But you need to pick a persona you can inhabit without strain. And I knew I would do better as the opposite of Ron, as the all-business tough guy who would protect you. I could see that that's what the biggest stars and directors wanted. So my persona became the I'll-make-your-dreams-come-true guy mixed with the I'll-fix-your-problems guy. Ron was the good cop, and I was the bad. Um, And then we're going to... So we already see he's kind of going, (laughs) gravitating towards the dark side, right? And then this, these sentences, which again, like a lot of this stuff is obvious in retrospect, but I didn't understand it while I was reading the book. And I feel that that's common for a lot. Like we talked about last week in the Republic of Tea, how they kept hinting, dropping little hints that, hey, I don't, like you can't make an entrepreneur, you can't do the entrepreneur's job for them. He's got to pick the business. Basically Mel's advice uh, to Bill, where there's all these hints that Mel was kind of like, hey, why are you taking so long? But now in retrospect, like you see, he's he's developing the seeds of a narrative. Well, Mike is doing the same thing here. So he says, underneath the roles, though, Ron and I were always more alike than even our colleagues realized. And this is the sentence I mean. Ron's easygoing demeanor hid a personality as calculating and determined and tightly wound as mine. And I'm going to share a lot of more details about that, which is kind of scary uh, when you think about how, like, 
how Machiavellian human beings can be. If, uh, I'd played by the rule. I I had played by the rules of William Morris, and so far it had worked. But I began to ask, what if? What if guys like Ron and me had more of a say? And then, what if we could run a company of our own? So now we're going to get into uh, the revolt. It's a group of guys, all at William Morris, that are perpetually dissatisfied with the the leadership, the decisions they're making. They feel that the new generation, all the older generations has the power and they want to um, usurp that kingdom. And again, this is, what, what do we always talk about on this podcast? The reason that, you, that I feel history is so valuable in studying and understanding is because human history doesn't repeat, human nature does. This exact same thing is going to happen by a young, uh, group of young agents in Mike's own company to him. And it's going to happen next year and 10 years from now and 100 years from now. Okay, so um, one of their guys gets fired. So uh, they thought that this guy, Phil, who I'm going to skip over it because it doesn't really pertain to our story, but I just want to tell you some background real quick. He got fired. They didn't think it was right. And um, they're like, hey, if they're going to fire, they could fire this guy. Basically, we're swimming naked out here. They could do that to us too. So said so that lit the fuse. At dinner one night, Ron said, why don't we go into business for ourselves? We'll make more money and they'll never be able to do to us what they did to Phil. Ron was persuasive, but I felt conflicted. I had more to gain by staying than Ron and more to lose by leaving. Seeing me hesitate, Ron said, you have no gamble in you. Sometimes you have to step up and roll the dice. That got me thinking. I was 27. If we busted in three years, I could land a new job and start over. So what he's saying is like, I have a limited downside and unlimited upside here. So I waited on three points. It seemed to me that we should take advantage of the fact that we were young and aggressive. We could try out new ideas that could reshape the ways the town did business. And so now they're, they're generating, they're, they're having these like secret meetings and they're coming to kind of outline what the business would look like. First, the equity had to be split evenly. Second, we had to try to get as big as we could. Third, we'd share our clients and serve them as a group. No more turf wars, no silos. At William Morris, we had many an agent who excelled at signing artists but stumbled in finding work for them. Wouldn't it be better, I said, if clients could rotate freely within our firm? We would be five musketeers, one for all and all for one. Everyone would handle everyone and everyone would tell our clients the truth. It was standard procedure in the agency business when a client called with unpleasant news or a dangerous rumor, I hear him getting fired off the fil film, for example, the agent would then say, don't worry, I know all about it and it's fine, even if this is the first they'd heard of it. We would pioneer the calm, no bullshit approach, saying instead, let me look into it and I'll get right back, I'll get right back to you. We'd be better agents because we wouldn't agent you. The other thing that would differentiate us, and it was a big one, was that we would create work for our clients, not just field offers. Everyone agreed, and suddenly the revolt felt real. This is a genius idea they have, actually, on how they actually start drumming up and creating their own work. And then they package like the raw materials needed for a film or a TV show with the talent needed, with the directors, and then sell the entire package to the movie, the, 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 the movie studios. It's actually a really, really good idea. Um, let's see. Okay, so they, they jump. I'm just going to read this this this, um, this sentence so you understand what's happening here. And even though CAA is still around today and it winds up being a giant, giant company, 
you know, I always reference that that famous quote that all like all things that are large start from small. The Jeff Bezos quote about you know an oak tree was at once an acorn. So it says CAA was a prototypical startup. We brought in folding chairs and card tables for desks, and our wives each came in one day a week to answer the phones. We had one paid assistant, a bookkeeper, and two cars among the five of us. So they're young and lean and hungry. Um, oh, you know what? I almost left this part out. I need to... <laughs> okay, this is actually a good idea. I didn't even... I. That would have been a mistake. Okay, so let me read this part to you. Um, this is... So what happens is uh, WMA is... It, William Morris is, is really, really mad because they took not only some of their agents, but they took some of the agents then uh, convinced some of their clients to leave w, WMA for CAA. And so they said um, they get a cease and desist letter shortly after. There's This, this is when uh, you start to see like a highlight of the kind of business, the industry they're in where they try to like hide who did it, but it was from a law firm that was uh, really close to WMA. And they're saying, hey, you can't be called CAA because... This other random company owns the trademark for um, something called Artist Agency. And so they were called Creative Artist Agency. And um, they were talking about, like, this is serious trouble. Like if WMA has a lot of money, CAA has no money. If they shrugged it out in court, the fees would basically uh, make CAA go bankrupt. They would basically die right right as they were being born. So... Um, this is when you start to see Mike is super, super aggressive. So he comes with this idea, and he's gonna he's gonna bluff them. He said, "I drained, I uh, drink, I, I drank a glass of water and cleared my throat. I needed to believe in what I was about to say, and my voice absolutely could not crack. I rang Leon Kaplan, and this is the the lawyer that wrote them the letter. He sounded arrogant, and why not? He pegged CAA as weak." And broke and defenseless. So it's funny. They were talking about Reddit. Uh, give you some context before we jump into this. Some of the old studios and talent agencies were being probed by the Department of Justice for monopolistic practices at the time, specifically like their contracts for, for TV. So he says, Mr. Kaplan, I said, we haven't met, but I know who you represent. I think you're trying to put us out of business. I think it's un inappropriate and unfair, and it could and it could be really interesting if this went to the Justice Department in the middle of their antitrust investigation. My tone was firm, but matter of fact, I went on. You can rip up this letter, and we can all be friends and forget about it. Or you can pursue it, and I will call a pal of mine who happens to work at the Justice Department, and I'll ask him to throw this into the hopper, and we'll see how it all sorts out. Dead silence. Then Kaplan said, what are you suggesting? It sounds like he just told you what he's suggesting. I'm suggesting you send me a handwritten letter within the next two hours of drawing the first letter. Or tomorrow morning, I'll call my friend. Then I thanked him and hung up. I gave no thought to the repercussions or to the fact that I was bluffing because we'd be out of business before the feds could get around to dealing with the call I'd never make to uh, anyway to a friend I didn't have. So it's all a lie. I played my hand as calmly as I could and waited for the outcome. Only after I'd hung up did I realize my hands were shaking. Time crawled by. Fifteen minutes before the deadline, a messenger arrived with a new letter from Kaplan. In the space of an afternoon, he'd moved from cease and desist to cease fire. 
that day forged our siege mentality. To defend our tiny position, we unleashed hell on anyone who crossed us. For the rest of my time at CAA, I was a great friend and ally, but an implacable foe. When you're 28 years old and you've quit your job and there's no going back and the industry leader tries to smother your baby in its cradle, you steal up pretty fast. Kaplan's letter taught us to play hardball, and hardball we would play for the next 20 years. And uh, this is just a random sentence that I thought was good advice on dealing with people. I believe that nobody wants to be treated just as what they are. Everyone wants to feel encouraged to become even more than they are, to become the best version of themselves. And this is an example of some great guerrilla marketing that CAA did um, when they basically had no money. So um, they need to get attention of actors and directors and writers. And this is part of their strategy about instead of waiting for business to come along, let's make the raw goods of the business. And so soon we had 80 agents sending us novels and manuscript to be optioned by our producers and then to our screenwriters for adaptation. And this is the guerrilla marketing part. After copying the scripts in bulk, we slapped on bright red covers with the white CAA logo and planted hundreds of them with scrawled notes and scuff marks for a used look in beauty parlors, restaurants, and doctor's offices. Most had no chance of selling, and we didn't leave any really important screenplays lying around, but they generated free publicity. They helped establish our brand in our race against larger but less agile firms like William Morris and International Creative Management, referred to as ICM. Um, so uh, that's, and then the, the result is in 1997, after two and a half years in which we netted nothing at all, each partner was beginning was be able to make eighty thousand dollars out of our now profits. There's still five of them at this uh, at this point. So slowly but surely, they're they're building their business, and now they're generating a profit. So at least they know they're not going to go out of business in the in the uh, immediate future. Um, I'm going to skip ahead. I think this is extremely important. This is the value of knowing the history of the industry that you're operating in. So he says, when we launched CAA, I had started a private project, one that took me nearly 10 years to complete. Um, and the private project was watching every film that had won one of the five big category Oscars. I discovered why Gone with the Wind had passed the test of time and how Green, and how green Was My Valley hadn't. I learned the relationship between vision and craft. At the same time, I was boning up on the deal structure of movies and on which actors and directors had currency. Film had its own language, and I needed to be bilingual. And, okay, so this is a really good point about how can you turn a weakness into a strength? Remember, they're still, they're, they're profitable, but they're still a tiny, tiny industry compared to some of the giants, so... Um, this is how he tried to, while well, he successfully poached Dustin Hoffman. Dustin had just shot Kramer vs. Kramer, which would win him his first Oscar. But prior to that, he had a string of bombs, and his career was in a precarious place. He was extremely picky about roles. But my pitch was much the same. We'll make sure you see everything, I said. I tried to turn a weakness, which was my experience and my small list of film clients, into a strength He'd have my complete attention. 
But Dustin was harder to read. On impulse, I said, try us out and I won't charge you anything until you think I've earned it. It was the only time I ever offered to take less than 10%, much less work for free. If word of the arrangement got out, the haggling with other clients would never end. But we desperately needed a top 10 film star like Dustin Hoffman. I deluged him with material and signed him six months later. So that's actually another smart um, tactic that he'd use. He would just, while he was trying to court potential uh, signees, whether it be actors, directors, whatever the case is, he would just act like he's their agent already. And he'd find opportunities and he'd keep selling, sending it to them to the point they're like, well, this guy's already working for me. I might as well just make this arrangement official, which again, I thought was a, another one of his really good ideas. Um, and then he, around this time, he, this is the vision that he's going to have for CAA that he actually successfully achieves too. And then this is also a, a story of when he just becomes kind of like a, a ruthless dictator. <laughs> okay. So he says, this is the vision. I'm going to have all these people someday, meaning every, the entire chain, in an agency that will represent the whole food chain and flip the power from the studios to the artists. Realizing that vision took years. And so this is one of the ways he starts to implement this vision. He has, um, he, he, he's like, I need directors. I don't have any directors. So he goes right after some of the best directors. And in particular, this guy named Sidney Pollock. And he thought this guy was ripe to being picked off because he was represented by a, a dying breed. This, this old sloppy, um, you know, not a, he, this, this agent that's just not as hungry as CAA is at the time. So it says, and this is a crazy thing about car phones that I didn't know. So we'll get there. Sydney's longtime agent was Evart Ziegler. His firm represented A-list writers and top-tier directors. I wanted them all. Um, but I was, but he's like, I would, how do I lure, but I don't know how to lure them away. The unexpected answer came through my car telephone, a novelty at the time. The radio based phone slightly larger than a shoebox, had 11 channels. You kept pushing buttons until you found a dial tone. Busy channels were like party lines. Any subscriber could listen in on my way to the office. One morning I heard a voice. Isn't that crazy though? You could just hack into like it's the product was made so you could listen in on other people's conversations. On my way to the office one morning, I heard a voice that sounded like Evart Ziegler's. I pulled off the road to take notes because Zig was discussing his star studded list with his assistant. I clocked in at the same time the next morning and there was Zig again doing business while commuting. I decided to try to buy him out. To make him more receptive, to soften him up, I escalated my campaign to Sidney Pollock, or to sign Sidney Pollock. I will kill for you, I told Sidney. All I had to sell was my passion and energy and the fact that I was 30 years younger than Edward Ziegler. As Sidney wavered, we got screenplay after screenplay after screenplay into his hands before Zig did. Each day, I spent up to two hours on Sidney, far more than anyone would spend on his biggest signed client. So this is even before he's getting them. And in 1981, with our courtship in its second year, so he's doing this for two years, he signed with me at last. Having dealt Zig a body blow, we offered him $750,000 for his agency, plus a lifetime royalty on his client's work. He'd keep a piece of his business in perpetuity, even if he never came to the office. After we negotiated for six months, Zig passed. But during our discussion, we discovered that Steve Roth serviced the, the, the cream of their young, the younger clientele 
Uh, so Steve is working uh, for, for Zig. Uh, Steve was eager to leave. We promptly cut a deal for him to come to CAA, and that got us most of what we wanted at the price of Steve's compensation, 250000 a year. So he got basically, instead of giving Zig seven fifty plus points on the back end in perpetuity. He's like, well, well, I'll just find another way. I'll just grab the guy that actually has all the value and I'll pay him 250000 a year. Uh, we had to build a critical mass for our clients so we could reverse the power. This is actually important to his entire thesis of behind CAA. We had to build a critical mass of clients so we could reverse the power curve from the buyers, which are the studios, to the sellers, which is us and the talent. And anyone in our way was going to get rolled over. Now you're going to see why so many people are going to wind up hating um, Mike, with his core business gone, Zig sold what remained to ICM and he was done. The truth is that I didn't give a thought to Zig after he turned us down. You never heard that somebody was unhappy afterward. They just lost. Ron sometimes had to remind me not to roll over everyone. There are 200 of these small agencies, Ron would say, and you can't put them all out of business. That made sense to me even then. But flattening Evart Ziegler was the beginning of my Sherman-esque march to the sea. Okay, so I'm skipping ahead. And this is a gigantic warning for entrepreneurs. This is extremely important, I think. So he's describing his, the, what his day-to-day life is at the time. He's already somewhat more successful than, uh, than he was in the last few years. And he gets some advice. And... Uh, most of this advice, you know, oh, he says he, he ignored at his own peril. There wasn't a day when I didn't walk in the door and get hit by a rush of anxiety. What idea can I come up with today to pay the overhead? There'd be the adrenaline rush when we sent out the internal memo. Memo. Robert Redford is now a client. Fifteen minutes later, it was, what's next? In 1979, I was 33. Ted Ashley at Warner Brothers took me aside and said, I'm going to give you some great advice. He grinned, and knowing you, you're not going to take it. But here it is. I could have worked 10% less, and it wouldn't have made a difference in my professional success. But I would have been a lot happier. Let me repeat that. I could have worked 10% less, and it wouldn't have made a difference in my professional success. But I would have been a lot happier. Ted was right, was absolutely right on both counts. It was great advice, and I didn't take it. I could see now that it could have worked as much as 20% less, and it wouldn't have cost me. If I'd worked even 10% less across 30 years, that's three whole extra years of life I would have enjoyed. Your clients burn through your energy, your expertise, and your joy. So remember, there's a lot of darkness in here. And we're starting to see a little bit about that. Um, so we're going to, I need to lay some foundation so you understand why all of his co-founders turned against him. Eventually, um, at the beginning, there was just, there was five kind of equal partners over time. They clearly see that this guy had more drive and was the natural leader. And so he's like, okay, well, I'm doing all the work. I'm bringing a lot more money to you guys. I work nights and weekends when you guys don't, et cetera, et cetera. So I need to renegotiate the equity. And even if all that information is true, we've seen this before. I've talked about this. Like these are not usually books uh, with the, the exception of who, 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 uh, the people we've covered is the exception. Maybe D- 
David Packard and Bill Hewlett. They, like they just don't. There's not a lot of equality, and I think just setting it up at the beginning. Like the problem here that I learned from Mike is, at the beginning it's all equal, and then over time you're doing more work. Yes. So you should hypothetically get compensated. Logically, we understand that, but humans are not logical. We're, we're emotional. So you're just going to sow seeds of like distrust and like, uh, unhappiness that you, if you want to work with these people for a long time, ostensibly your entire life, like you can't do that. So, um, he just said, Hey, I, I'm soft, but firm. The ownership structure of our company was way off. Um, and he, he's just laying out what he's doing, I'm not going to read that part, what he's doing, what other people aren't. And so he said, I said, and then this is the problem. Like he says, I said that if I didn't get more than the 16.67% that each of the six partners owned, I'd have to consider other options. Six partners, the person they recruited from the other firm. So he's like basically giving them an ultimatum. Um, they took the obvious point that I'd become clearly the firm's leader. Um, and I got larger allocation of sh- shares. Professionally, mission accomplished emotionally though i had just hit the self-destruct button only it would take 16 years to go off i wasn't emotionally aware enough to realize that ron had felt slighted and that that i had moved up and he didn't so this is remember his best friend he called him a blood brother the person that they they were the first two guys that want to start the company together um so it says oh so then this is so there's all this beef between Bill and Ron. Ron wants to fire Bill, who's a partner. Uh, Mike covers Bill's saying, no, we shouldn't. And so it says, um, like, you know, I didn't, the reason he's saying basically I didn't want to do this because we're, we're succeeding right now. I don't want to kick a partner out. We're, like we're successful. Let's just not do this. So he says, I didn't want to mess with our success. I wanted everything to say the, exe- the same, except that I'd get more. What I should have done for Ron was give him some of my own allocation of shares and then figure out how to handle Bill. To be to really be his blood brother, I should have behaved as his agent. And then this is the, the, another, he's he's setting us up for the, the payoff at the end uh, with another one of these sentences. He says, Bill never had an inkling of Ron's animus. I was amazed at how well Ron hid his true feelings from someone he saw every day. So what Ron is doing to Bill, Ron also does to Mike. And that's what I mean about people just being Machiavellian. I can see why it's usually just one founder at the top. And then because it, it's just relationship. It's just very hard. And this, this is coming Ron winds up being the, set, the, the for his entire life. He says he's the world's best number two. So he knows he couldn't be a number one in the sense of like leading the company. Like he needed somebody like Mike. And then he, he I think to this day, he's still uh, running the second in command at Universal. He's done that job for like 20 something years. But it's any, by his own admission, this is how tricky human behavior is. Do you see what I'm saying here? Like his own admission is I'm the world's greatest, best number two. So I'm the Scotty Pippen to other people's Michael Jordans. But that number two still secretly wants to be number one. And he's just very Machiavellian with this. I'm not like trying to trash the guy. I don't know who he is. Like I, I got, um, and in the end, like uh, towards the end of this podcast and the end of the book, we'll get to, you know, there's a happier ending somewhere in there, but it's just, uh, human behavior is tricky, man. It's just tricky. I guess my point. All right, let's move on. I don't need to keep hammering that point. Oh, I found this interesting. Um, this is just something that's kind of like, whoa, something I try to internalize for myself. It's just like, you got to be careful what you expose yourself to because inevitably, 
the things that you expose yourself, the ideas, what you pay attention to, the people you're around, they're just going to influence you. So, um, and they can influence you positively or negative. So this is what influenced some of the influences uh, that Mike adapted and used to build the culture of CAA. So he says, our corporate culture was American team sports boosterism. I don't know what that is. Mixed with Spartan military tactics, mixed with Asian philosophy, all overlaid by the com- community community spirit of the three musketeers that culture was a collective endeavor and and one that hundreds of people shaped and defined over the years but among the partners i gave the most thought to what but out of all the partners i gave the most thought to what it should be i scraped from an eclectic variety of sources a businessman's version of picasso's method from law firms i took our phraseology that's interesting. I don't even know if that's a real world word. Ron was a partner, and so were the people in the mailroom, and also the paramount importance of confidentiality. So that's from law. Our collaborative approach came from the way Magic Johnson ran his fast break with the Lakers. He'd drive it up the middle, have an open shot, and pass it up to feed an unguarded teammate. Who wouldn't kill to play with that point guard? At staff meetings and retreats, I began to talk about the philosophy of the Chinese general and military strategist Sun Tzu, whose art of war I'd read in college. We took his ideas on loyalty, on teamwork, and on how having complete information was the key to decision-making. The book also resonated with me because it prioritized strength and toughness. Ron and Bill thought my emphasis on Sun Tzu was crazy until they realized that it worked. In truth, though, the Chinese general was always a bit of a prop. This is an interesting perspective. I've never, never heard this before. I never thought about it in this way, I guess I should say. It wasn't so much that what he said that inspired CAA as the idea that we, a five-year-old company, was adhering to a philosophy from 2,500 years, 2, years ago. It gave us instant roots. I was obsessed with the Spartan phalanx, the idea that you were only as strong as the colleague on your left. We'd go to meetings as a group. We'd go to screenings as a group walking down the aisles together half an hour early, 10 or 15 strong, a show of power. Okay, so that's the end of the beginning of the company. And they're going to use these strategies and these tactics and Mike's super, super aggressive behavior to kind of dominate the industry. So I'm going to jump way ahead. And now I want to talk about what happens after you become the thing you hate. And now we're going to get into more about Mike's own psychology of how he runs his business and like the, the human elements to, to dealing with people. So this is how he realized, oh crap, I became the thing I hate. And he basically, he, he's trying to do a favor for somebody else and he has to roll over somebody that was nice to him and he didn't have to roll over or he didn't have to do that, but he did it anyways. And then he talks about the weird thing is realizing why was she why was she so easy to roll over it's not like she's a very strong successful person and so this is his thoughts after it was her very agreeableness about the whole extortion process that stays with me she was too nice that meant that people had to be nice to us now that we had the power to compel no part of the transaction i muscled through was about helping talented people pursue or find their vision that was his original mission statement or goal for creative uh, for CAA, right? It was zero creative artists and 100% agency. I had become everything I detested in the 60s when I was a bleeding heart liberal at UCLA. The very, I, so he's basically becoming the very symbol of the establishment. 
I had become the man. This was weirdly refreshing about this book is he's just kind of honest about his faults. And he talks about, he's like, I hid all this during my time. Like I couldn't show weakness. And for him to show it to us in the, um, in this book is fascinating because it's not, it's kind of like an emotional roller coaster reading this thing. Like, uh, especially when you get towards the end where we're at now, where like there's a good chunk of it. Where I was like, Oh my God, this guy, like I feel bad for him. And then, you know, luckily he kind of saves it at the end. So, um, this is just one sentence, but again, I just want to bring it to our attention because I feel we're doing something wrong. We're doing something wrong. When you see that I wrote the note to, I left on my margin on the post-it note, it says there is that feeling again. And let me just read this and then I'll tell you what I think we're doing wrong. The first 10 years at CAA were the best 10 years of my life. And the reason I say there's that feeling again, that like taking notes on all these podcasts for entrepreneurs while they're building their businesses or after they built a business, reading these books, you know, you're not going to write a book about your business till it's already built, right? You see this thing over and over and over again. They look back longingly at the beginning when they were small, when it was just a group, they were, they were not, they don't look back at, oh, now we're at the pinnacle of industry. This, the, 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 I have the most power I ever had, uh, the most success I ever had. And now it's just kind of expanding out and continuing to dominate. It's this. Humans, for some reason, they, they, they miss this part. The first, t- listen to what he's saying. The first 10 years of CA were the best 10 years of his life. 10, he's 70 something years old now. Like that's a tiny, like, you know, no, I shouldn't say it's tiny, 10 years out of 70s. It's just like, he's not saying when I was a parent, this is the best time. Like, uh, I shouldn't say that. That's not, obviously like he he loves his kids. It's as almost every parent does. Um, I guess what I'm saying is like, we feel the need to grow out of this when maybe staying in that for as long as possible would be better served. And maybe that's just not possible because why are so many smart and successful people, they grow out of that and then they look back and realize with a little bit of tinge of regret that, you know, constantly like growth for growth's sake and expansion for expansion's sake, which is what exactly what he does for CAA, did not lead Michael to be happier. That after reading that book, that much is very clear. So I just want to, um, I don't know, when I see that in these books, I want to share it with you because I don't know the answer here. Um, I'm learning this stuff at the same time you are. It's just, uh, it's weird. It, there's something, and maybe it's just a, like our, our natural tendency to be nostalgic about times past, but they do tend to um, hone in on the, the beginning. It's like, oh, the best time was when it was just a little group of us in a room, and like we, we had you know, just a handful of clients, and we were doing everything together. And then you know, inevitably, it grows so large, you can't do that anymore, and they, they don't seem to like it as much. And, um, and we're going to talk about like, so now I'm going to go into his typical day schedule and remember the schedule because eventually we're going to get to the point where he just, he's sick of it. He's sick of himself and he's sick of what he's done. All right. So he says, um, this is a typical day schedule treat. And he, t- uh, he says, treating my clients like family was hard on me and my actual family. I woke up at 5 45 AM. 15 minutes later, I'd be riding the bike in my gym and making calls to Europe and skimming five newspapers, marking articles for my assistant to strip out and distribute to the firm. After 40 minutes on the bike, I'd do 30 or 40 minutes of martial arts and I'd work myself to exhaustion. By 8 a.m., after showering and eating a fast breakfast, I'd be on the car phone en route to the office. After our morning meeting, I'd take meetings, have lunch, 
have a drink with a colleague and a working dinner, and all in between running calls up to 300 phone conversations a day. After being a chameleon all day at work, it took me an hour or so to figure out who the fuck I was when I got home. And all the, and all the time the phone would keep ringing, which drove Judy crazy, his wife. She would want to discuss my day to feel closer to me. But I was exhausted by my day and didn't want to talk about work in front of the kids. I wanted them to feel normal and safe. After the kids went to sleep, I worked every night, skimming through a couple of the three or four VHS cassettes I'd brought home and chipping away at the stack of screenplays. Then I'd fall asleep to Johnny Carson at midnight. And then he'd get up and do the exact same thing the night, very next day. So that's kind of an untenable um, position to stay in for a very long time, especially as he as he gets age uh, as he gets um, older. Okay. So this is his feelings. Remember, I'm in, towards the end of the book. Like, I mean, there's a. I'm way past the, the point where CA is a startup. And this reminded me something I took notes on um, with the founder of Stripe, Patrick Collison, who's a fascinating, he's got a, every time uh, I'm able to like read his writing or hear him on a podcast, I try to, because he's just got an interest, really interesting mind to me. And he said something that was, uh, let me let me pull it up real quick. Okay, I grabbed my notes real quick. All right, so he said something that was interesting. And he was asked the question, like, what's one thing that um, you wish you knew? Are uh, that no like you wish you knew before you started? He says what what no one told him before he started. Even if the company is succeeding, things will still often not feel great. I thought if the company was succeeding, it would feel good day to day. You are always operating at the edge, but you are always operating at the edge of what you can handle, and inevitably always on the cusp of feeling like you're going to fall over. Which is very strange because I think a lot of people would look at the companies built and be like, wow, this is one massively successful internet company. It it uh, underpins so much of the internet economy. He must be like just waking up fa- feeling fantastic every day. And he's saying, no, it's the opposite. Like you're, I'm always pushing myself to the limit, so I'm always uncomfortable. This is Mike saying, expressing basically the same exact thought. Each time I walked through our front door, I felt a physical chill, like the chill you felt in high school before a final exam. How much did we have to earn today to cover our costs? What if the business shifted and the money dried up? The feeling would recede for a time once I sat down on my desk and began to work, but I carried those fears to my last day there. And again, I think that's so fascinating, the difference between our interpretation or like what we're inferring from the outside to what it actually feels like. He built CAA and was widely successful after a few years. He did that job for over 20 years, and he still felt like that 20 years later. Okay, and I want to, so now we're, this is later on, this is more of like the human element, the problems he's having with his co-founders. So he said, one morning in 1987, Ron came into my office, shut the door and said, I've got a problem. I said, shoot, we've had a thousand conversations that started like that. I lost a lot of money in a poker game and I can't pay up. I was shocked, but I said, okay, we'll take care of it. I figured it was $100,000 or so. How much? I'm not sure you'll be able to take care of it. Well, how much is it? Over $5 million. As I st- and this is the important part, not to the fact that he lost that much money. But what does that mean is the implications of their relationship. As I strove to underreact, Ron told me he'd been going to Vegas several times a week. He'd make the flight after work, play deep into the night, and grab a few hours of sleep before flying back to L.A. in the morning and working his ass off as, off as usual, never missing a meeting. I was unable to process this. 
He must be a phenomenal poker player, I thought. He has no tells. Then again, he must be a shitty poker player because he just lost over $5 million. My partner, my best friend, the guy I was tied to for life, clearly had an unconscious need to throw everything away we had worked for. For the next year and a half, Ron and I worked harder and harder and more closely than ever. Then one morning, he closed my door, took a seat. I skipped over the part where they, they obviously help him out and they, they pay off his, they find a way to pay off his money, uh, his debt. Then one morning, he closed, so this is a year and a half later. Then one morning, he closed my door, took a seat and looked at me with a funeral, a funeral expression. You're not going to believe this, he said. But another poker game, an even, an even bigger loss this time, $6.5 million. I felt that he had smashed me with a baseball bat. Who was this man? I was deeply, deeply shaken. Despite my 360-degree paranoia, I hadn't seen any of this coming, which scared the crap out of me. I prided myself on reading people and forecasting from subtle clues. And here, I hadn't been reading Ron right for 10 years. The fact was so shocking to me that I instantly tried to forget it. Skipping another couple pages. This is just real quick and something that happens throughout the book. This entire book is littered with regrets, which I think is important for us to learn from. So hopefully we, we avoid that same fate. Um, so he's looking back. This is before he even leaves CAA. He says, I would have had a much happier life if I hadn't been so determined to appear all-knowing and invulnerable. Remember that statement he said at the beginning where he, he, most of life is of shades of gray and he, he treated it like it was black and white? Oh, this is a great quote about... Um, so he, he's, he hires... He has a lot of like personal trainers and uh, martial art instructors and he noticed something about people He'd invite people he worked for, worked with, partners, uh, clients, employees, etc., over to his house every Saturday because he would go through these these workouts. And something that I think is a great quote and something for us to try to adhere to our life. And you don't have to apply it to working out, apply it to whatever it is that you do, but it's very rare in humans. And he says, uh, he talked about this guy, you know, come over for a few times and inevitably everybody would quit. So he says, but he stopped because it was hard. It required discipline, dedication, and hours and hours of time. Everyone stopped. I didn't stop. Okay, so I'm going to skip. Now I'm skipping over a huge chunk of the book again because he starts, he's perpetually dissatisfied, and I didn't know that he was kind of embarrassed to be an agent, which we'll get to in a minute. But he starts doing these things where he's like, well, we don't just like if we're if we're packaging up deals and bringing all uh, uh, all the talent and the, the raw materials for the studios to make their product. He starts to like, why don't I learn investment banking and trying to do uh, like he had a, you know, an entire network of people. So he starts brokering deals for other uh, companies to buy movie studios and, and just kind of spreading out everything that CAA does. This actually causes a rift between him and Ron because he's having to travel like, uh, in this case, he does a deal through, uh, with the one I'm going to tell you. He does a deal with Sony buying MCA, which is the, the, the company that, did I get that right? Yeah, Sony bought, uh, which is the one that Lou Wasserman, the, the name I said you should remember earlier in the podcast. 
and so he's he's having to travel and it takes a lot of time i'm going to tell you i'm going to start this section off with how much money they make because it's rather impressive that he expanded out from a talent agency to do this but it also caused a lot of rift and eventual breaking up of his partner which we're going to get into in a minute but i thought um this is a insight into the psychology and I don't think it's just the psychology of Mike. I think it's the psychology of a lot of entrepreneurs. And I don't think it has to, it's a universal trait, but I've seen it pop up a lot. And it's the fastest animal on the field. So once he, Sony closes, they buy the, they buy the company for $6.5 billion, which is the largest deal Mike had done up until the point in his life. And um, the guy that he, Hirata is the guy, um, is now paying Mike for his services. He gave me a colossal check to distribute as I saw fit, $135 million. After paying the bankers and all the consultants, I was left with $60 million for CAA, which is the equivalent of $110 million in today's money. It changed everything for us. In Hollywood, where people didn't know Goldman Sachs from Saks Fifth Avenue, everyone was dumbstruck that a talent agency could earn that kind of fee, let alone arrange and execute a deal of that magnitude. Of course, my elevated profile pissed off my partners, and I began to feel that I was a hamster on a wheel. Part of me felt I was running on the wrong wheel, that I should be going into business for myself, and part of me believed that I really wasn't that I wasn't really a hamster, but a cheetah, the fastest animal on the field. Even as everyone was telling me to slow down, I wanted to speed up. So this is something I don't I've never run into before in reading these books where he actually spent 20 years building a company he didn't even really want to do. And so we're, I'm going to share some of this, uh, some of these insights, but he's talking about this here. He's like, maybe I should just be in business for myself. Maybe I'm not a hamster. Maybe I'm a cheater. Maybe I'm a, che a cheetah rather. Maybe I'm better than everybody else that I'm playing against. They don't know what they're talking about. Okay. So, um, before I get there, just a little bit more darkness. Um, because now, you know, he's been in business close to what? What is this? 17, 15 to 17 years. He's going to a funeral. Remember, um, I, I'm skipping over this entire part about his fallout with Mike Eisner. Um, he leaves CIA and a uh, deal falls through that Ron winds up taking. And then uh, the backup deal is to become Michael Eisner's number two at Disney, which only lasts like 14 months. But um, Mike Eisner's right-hand man dies. So he's at the funeral. So he says, when Frank Wells, Eisner's beloved right-hand man, died in a helicopter crash in 1994, the memorial service held at a soundstage at Warner Brothers was packed with more than a thousand devastated mourners. So I need you to understand the time. This is one year before uh, Mike is leaving CAA. So this is towards the end of his agent career. And you're going to see what the result of that is. So Frank Wells, he had a uh, funeral packed with more than a thousand devastated people. I tried to cheer up Frank's widow, Luann, by saying, if I died tomorrow, there'd be 25,000 people here to make sure I was dead. She laughed, which was my intent, but it was true. So he, he's keenly aware that he's kind of burned bridges and it's, you know, a lot of people despise him. Which again, I think, I don't think, is it... it if you're there is a element of humanity that like you, you could be super successful, but if you do it so in a way where everybody hates you, I don't think you're going to be happy. Okay, so this is him realizing that he he's done. He's done with CAA. I never stopped loving artists in the creative process. I never lost my fascination for the magic of making something from nothing. But agenting was a young person's game. 
and you could run you could run just you could run just so long and so far. At 48, having run since my first day at William Morris, I was tired. I was tired of getting up at 6 a.m. and squeezing in a workout while on the phone with your app. I was tired of rolling through 300 calls a day, take, talking till my throat was raw. I was tired of having lunches and dinners scheduled three months out. I was tired of flying 600 hours a year, the equivalent of one work week a month. I was tired of owning six tuxedos for the 30 obligatory events between November 1st and Christmas. I was tired of returning calls from 7 p.m., going till dinner, going to dinner till 10 p.m., coming home to a mountain of pink message slips, calling Japan till midnight and starting all over again six hours later. I was tired of submerging myself, drowning myself in the lives of my clients and their families and significant others. Our clients' worries about the size of their trailers and how big their billing would be, ha- would be had come to seem increasingly petty. The truth is I'd always disliked having to see to people's creature comforts, making sure our actors and our directors had fresh guava and the perfect nanny. You're an adult. Run your own life. And so in the midst of being tired, he also talks about the fact that he's embarrassed to be an agent. He, he was looking for a lot of external validation, which I think is probably a path for um, unhappiness for all of us because I don't think that many people actually like achieve that calling. So he's basically saying, hey, I'm going to go from the sell side to the buy side. And he wants to run his own studio. And he wants, he basically wants, he doesn't want to run the company he built, although successful, you know, a couple hundred million dollars in revenue, which, which should be fantastic for most people. But Mike, he has this like, this, well, he's going to say, he's I'm looking for, for respect and validation, which I don't think is a good idea. Um, so he says, I was about to become a very wealthy man. He's, he's in negotiations around a couple of studios and this is fun. It's not funny. This is interesting because it falls through. When I was younger, cash was my ticket out. I'd made lots of it since, but I yearned to accumulate money, to build equity, which felt different from merely making it. Once an agent stopped working, there was no accrued equity to fall back on. I watched the runaway growth at Microsoft, where Bill Gates had built one of the world's largest companies. Fortunes were beginning to be made off the internet. Executives I considered my peers, Michael Eisner, Barry Diller, were raking in hundreds of millions in stock options. So this is before he leaves CAA to go to Disney. My appetite for corporate bucketeering grew as I worked with Herb Allen and mingled with Fortune 50 CEOs in Sun Valley. It grew further whenever I lost an auction to an art collector with deeper resources. I wanted to play in that league too. And in truth, I had always been faintly embarrassed to be an agent. As much as CAA had professionalized our field, it would never be a noble calling. I wanted to be one of the six people who could say yes to a movie. I felt I needed the credential of a public company job. I was still looking for respect and validation. The reason I think say, say that's not a good idea because I don't believe that you could ever be that you could ever fulfill that desire. The need for constant validation and respect from other people, I think, is you shouldn't play games you can't win, and that's a game you can't win. Like you should be doing things for internally. Like he's he's and there's nothing wrong. I mean, I just have a different perspective. I'm not like it's like there's nothing really wrong if you want to play in that. You want to be a Fortune 50 CEO. For me, like I'm not, I don't think size of a company is as important as like the product you make. So what I mean by that, like let's say you're Fortune 50 C- CEO at the time. This is in what the 80s, so there's probably 
Philip Morris might be in there. Well, what, what's the product you make? You sell a product that is addicting, unhealthy, and kills people. Like, I don't, that, that's not, I don't admire that. Uh, meanwhile, like you can have a, a hugely uh, massive company that builds great products. And I think that's the, like what you should shoot for. Like I, Apple's a massive company. I love their products. <laughs> like I, I don't, this whole fascination with businesses is, is weird to me where it's just all about size. Um, where there's nothing that the size in and of itself is not a bad thing. I'm not saying that by any means. I'm just saying that it just depends on what your like company's made to do. You're, you could have a giant company that has a shitty product. That's not, you know, I, I, I don't think that's appealing. Okay, so in between all this, he, he's thinking he's going to take over MCA, which again, uh, he, he, he um, brokered the deal. So MCA bought, or excuse me, Sony bought MCA. Uh, and then eventually they need somebody, this is a few years later, so they need somebody to run the, the company. He's tapping, uh, he's doing negotiations with the family. And the family that buys it is a liquor company called Seagram's, which I think is the same is the same company that his dad worked for, which is kind of like a small world thing. Um, and he's, he's trying to, he basically negotiated for him to go over there and then for uh, a CEO and then Ron, his blood brother to go as COO. So he's like second in command. The deal falls through and he's like, okay, this isn't going to work. Ron's like, Ron was acting as his agent during this time. And he's like, okay, well, let me give it another crack to see if we can do this. Cause I, you know, me and you both want to get it out of the agent business. Let's try something new. And this is you're going to start to see where Ron, you know, was kind of Machiavellian. He said, early in July, Ron called from New York one afternoon. Guess what? He said, I've met with Edgar. That's one of the guys that's in charge of, uh, that owns the company that owns MCA. And there's been a change in plans. He wants me to run MCA. And I think I'm going to do it. I felt completely numb, frozen with disbelief. The job on the table chief operating officer was one I had negotiated for Ron in my last go round with Edgar with one big difference. I was out of the picture. Uh, they bring in somebody else, uh, as CEO for Ron to report to after a long silence. When I felt that I could speak without my voice breaking, I told Ron how much I needed him, what it meant to have him by my side. I'm great at pitching even when I'm not sincere. And I was a thousand percent sincere. So it was my greatest pitch ever. I'm sure he'd be won over. What came back in a burst of rage were all of Ron's pent-up grievances. Remember how the entire book is sprinkled through, hey, it's kind of weird that Bill worked with Ron every day and didn't know how he really felt about him or talking about how is this guy losing millions of dollars and, and taking trips to Vegas I don't know about and et cetera, et cetera. So what came back in a burst of rage were all of Ron's pent-up grievances, how he'd under-negotiated for him with Edgar, Edgar and over-negotiated for Bill, that same guy, because I'd valued them equally in my ask. How I'd made a big mistake by walking away from MCA and how it had always been all about me, never about him. How it was time to strike out on his own, to be recognized as something more than my conciliary. Ooh. I tried to sell him for two more hours as the knot in my stomach swelled into my throat. Finally, my voice faltered and I gave way. His mind was made up. I felt absolutely crushed. Ron was leaving and taking the best, most human part of me with him. I felt like I was getting divorced. Uh, 
Um, so that's where they, that's basically the end of, so they, they had a 20 year partnership. Let's say they're from the time these guys were in their late 20s to their late 40s. They don't reconcile, and I'm going to get to that part, for there's a 20-year gap. So you're friends for 20 years, and then you're basically, I mean, enemies for 20 years. And they do a lot of immature sh- stuff to each other, like plant rumors about each other in the press. Uh, Ron tells uh, Mike that he's interested in buying this house. Mike buys it first. And, like, they wind up, like, he winds up giving the, letting Mike, or letting Ron buy the house. But it's just, like, a lot of immature stuff to do when you're in your 50s, right? Um, and there's all, so he gets up, I'm, I'm now I'm skipping over. So I need to be clear with you. I skipped over the whole Disney mess. So he leaves CAA, the people at CAA that take over hate him. So he's basically has no part of his own company. He loses his best friend. He goes to work for his second best friend, Mike Eisner. Mike Eisner winds up being a deceitful person. And, um, basically publicly humiliating him, firing him. So after 14 uh, months, he gets fired. He winds up collecting like $130 million from Disney, but still, like he basically has no job at this point. And now that he's out, he has no power. Um, he starts another a- a company, AMG, that's going to be like management and other stuff that doesn't work out. He winds up losing tens of millions of dollars on that deal. So basically what I'm saying is, remember go back a few minutes ago where I was like, this whole th- like striving for the for the validation from other people is kind of a dead end well he did that he never got to run the public company never got any of that and he lost almost everything i mean he's still very very rich but he's still not happy about this and then now ron and a bunch of other people in the industry like david geffen and all these other people are like you know mike doesn't have any power he's weak now so they start attacking him they start spreading rumors about him they trash his name and he just does some really, 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 he even says, like, I basically, every problem I tried to solve, I end, and now ended up making wor- making it worse, which is exact opposite of what he did to his whole career. And so we're going to see more darkness and more regrets. So now he got sick of David trying to sabotage, David, this is David Geffen, who he got sick of him trying to sabotage his company even after, um, after AMG closes. Like, he sells off the assets and he just takes the loss. And so he says, I'd even gone to see David in his offices at Amblin Entertainment and warned him that if he didn't stay out of my affairs, I'll beat the living shit out of you. He didn't stay out. So I vented to Vanity Fair. And this is one of his biggest mistakes. If you Google his name now, this comes up actually, where he, um, he vents to Vanity Fair and he says that Geffen and Ron and Michael Eisner and all these other people are part of a gay mafia. And he's just ranting and he's saying it to a reporter who then reports his words. And he says this idea was absurd and poisonous because most of the people I named were not even gay. <laughs> so he's just making, making a bad mistake. He's in a, a bad emotional spot. So he's just compounding his, his mistakes here. And then more regrets. And he says, I always thought it was vital to mix business and friendship. I was learning painfully that it was better to keep those realms far apart. Business always gets personal. I thought back on the career path I'd taken and realized that I would have been much happier as an artist or as an architect, happier in an arena where you don't make five new enemies every time you create something. And that's something I didn't know anything about, like the the entertainment industry before this book. I can't recall anything that is. And it just sounds like a terrible 
Like it, it, it sounds like a terrible place to spend your time. So that's the negative part. I'm, I'm not going to end this on a negative part because I get to the point in the book. Now there's only a few pages left. And I was like, wow, man, this is, this is not, I just feel sad for this guy. This is terrible. Cause he said, I really do think like most people, they want to be liked, right? Well, thank God he meets somebody that I personally admire, although I'd never met, but I did a podcast on, uh, Mark Andreessen and Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz both talk about, uh, the influence that Mike Ovitz had on them. So we're kind of coming full circle. And so now he, he has, he has a new beginning and it based on having dinner with Mark Andreessen and he winds up, you know, finding a purpose in life where he can actually succeed. He becomes a philanthropist, an investor, an advisor to entrepreneurs. So we're going to see a little bit about that here. So he has uh, dinner and he says, partnering with Ben Horowitz, Mark imagined how startups might use business software on the network, what now people, what, what people now call the cloud, instead of seeking capital and costly servers. Way ahead of the herd, he saw that he saw that everyone would soon become connected to the digital network. So he's meeting Mark after Netscape. And when uh, him and Ben start uh, LoudCloud, which turns into Opsware, or is it the reverse? I don't know if it's LoudCloud turns into Opsware or Opsware turns into LoudCloud, but I should know that because I did a podcast on it. Oh, it, LoudCloud turns into Opsware. Okay. Um, so he said, when we met at an LA restaurant, I expected a geek from Central Casting. What I got was someone six foot five, an athletic looking guy with a winning smile. Um, he was hyper articulate, insatiably curious, and voraciously well read. He was Michael Crichton on steroids. Mark invited me north to meet with Ben Horowitz. Ben is a brilliant manager and entrepreneur in his own right, and together he and Mark were a formidable team. They asked me to join the Loud Cloud board and, board, and so began a new chapter on my life. As Mark and Ben led me into their world, I felt like a privileged student in a graduate school of one. That may be, that may be my favorite um, sentence in the entire book because I think about like if you can take like the, the idea of being a privileged school, student in a graduate school of one, I really feel that when you're reading a book like the one I have in my hand and some of the other books that have been covered on the podcast um, – you are like you're you're taking their entire experience and in this case we have 70 years of experience that mike has uh in life and in business and you're compressing it down into a few hours and as i'm talking i'm trying to pull up this tweet that i saw that i absolutely love and i want to remind myself and it says um a great book takes years to write but only hours to read the reader nets the difference and I think what's happening with Mike here is even though he's, he's, he's had tons of experience in his own life, he's now being able to benefit um, and start to work in an industry where Mark and Ben had been working for a long time and they understood. And I just lo love that description. I felt like a privileged student in the graduate school of one. Um, and then a little bit, I just want to include this part because it speaks about the influence that, pe that people around you have and something I discussed on... Um, on the podcast, at least with Ben Horowitz, I know. So it says, in other words, they talk about, they, they come to after, um, they sell Opsware for $1.65 billion. They're like, um, Mike's like, hey, um, I, I want to start investing, angel investing with you guys. And they're like, oh, funny, you should mention that. We're actually going to do something more formal. So it says, in other words, Mark and Ben set out to be the CAA of Silicon Valley. They borrowed our roots to give themselves gravitas the same way I had borrowed from Lou Wasserman and Sun Tzu. In essence, the firm linked all the partners' networks and added specialists to strengthen the whole organism. 
No individual owns an account at Andreessen Horowitz. Investments are chosen by joint approval of the general partners, with the entire staff having a say. Then the team provides in-house experts to assist at startups with recruitment, budgeting, operations, sales, publicities, IPOs, whatever an entrepreneur might, lead, might need. Excuse me. This is exactly what, um, exactly what Mike did to the entertainment industry 20 years prior, which was new at the time. Um, so a few years later, uh, not, about a year later, I should say, they hold an intervention for Mike at a New York restaurant. And they're like, hey, stop messing around in L.A., come to Silicon Valley. And uh, he said, this, Mark said, gravely, is an intervention. I tensed, knowing what was coming. Lately, I'd been spending two days a week at Andreessen Horowitz. Now it's about to be triple teamed into picking up stakes and making Northern California my base of operations. And I, I'm skipping over this part, but just, just made me laugh when I read it. Uh, as we rose from the table, Mark, and he was still a little unsure, um, but he's like, it's tough to re resist heartfelt counsel from three people you trust, especially when they're three awfully smart people. And this department made me laugh. As we rose from the table, Mark said, Cortez, dude. His reference to the Spanish conquistador who burned his ships to prevent his crew from returning to Europe. And it made me laugh. Made me laugh too, Mike. Okay. And then this is what, actually funny because I'm going to skip over a bunch of, he describes, you know, his time since then. He's now been working in it for years, investing in all kinds of um, companies and helping all kinds of entrepreneurs. So he's an investor and advisor to entrepreneurs, and he talks about like what his value is. He says, founders are much more interested in my mistakes, which can often be generalized to their situation, than in my successes, which were often particular to the agency business. I feel I highlighted that because I feel there's a lot of useful things to, to learn about starting your own company and handling uh, people and, and running businesses in this book. But I do feel like, that's the feeling I had. Like there's, he's telling us in an honest way that he didn't have to do um, the mistakes he made so we can avoid them, which I think is extremely valuable. And almost done guys. Don't worry. This, I know it's a long podcast, but this is a really interesting book. It's a, uh, it's an emotional roller coaster. If you read this book, it's, there's going to be times where you're happy and then you're going to be sad. But I, I think like you can't have the yin without the yang. So it's, that's why it's taken me so long to get through it. Okay, so here comes a reconciliation, and I actually love this idea. Um, he said, over the years, I kept hearing that Ron was still furious at me. Someone who was on Universal's plane, that's the company that Ron works for, with him recently told me, he ripped you for 30 minutes. It sounded like you and he had just, uh, just had a fight yesterday. I finally had enough. A couple of years ago, I called Ron and said, look, everywhere I go, I keep hearing from people that are saying terrible things about me. Now think about that. They were best friends for 20 years. This is really sad. I'm sure some of your complaints are completely justified, but they can't all be because we had 25 good years together. Oh, it's so 25. I was wrong about that. We were getting up there in age and I'd like not to leave the planet with this breach between us. Somewhat to my surprise, he instantly said, I'd like that too. So they agreed to meet. After shaking hands and sizing each other up, we made some, some small talk as we looked over the menus. It felt both uncomfortable and a, it felt both uncomfortable and strangely warmly familiar. We left a second meeting up in the air. After pondering the problem, I called Ron and said, "This is what I think is a good idea. I think it'd be best if we each had a mediator who can listen to both of us and help us interpret each other and referee if necessary." So I found a UCLA professor to me, to met to mediate. Excuse me. 
Ron and I met at a coffee shop in the basement of, of, this per, of her office, the mediator, and then went up to her office for a two-hour session, our first of three. Ron started talking and didn't stop for a half hour. He immediately acknowledged that he spent 20 years denigrating me to anyone who would listen. He said, I was the guy taking care of the agency while you were running all around the world. You had the big profile, but I was doing all the hard work. So he's admitting that he was resentful, right? He responded that without him, the business would have fallen apart. When I started to explain, he talked over me. He wasn't going to let me express my feelings. He was still the keeper of our collective emotions. So the first session didn't end particularly well. The second one went better. With the mediator's help, I got a chance to apologize, and Ron accepted my apology. Then he owned up to all his rancor and sabotage, which was a form of an apology or at least of candor. Yet even as he worked to get, out the feel- to get the feelings out, I felt destroyed because Ron kept confirming my worst fears. Every time anyone in the town had struck a match of accusation against me, Ron had dumped on a truckload of gas. No one was better equipped to put you away than me, he said. I told him, Ron, you were unhappy at CAA, so you kind of shoved it to me. I apologize for missing the signs that you were unhappy, but you could have just told me. He smiled a little and said, yeah, but you didn't want to hear it. After the sessions, we began meeting for lunch. He talked about his job. I talked about how I didn't have a job. Ron followed up. He checked in. He was courteous and thoughtful. He made me feel like I was the only thing on his mind. It was seductive, particularly as more and more time passed without strife. But a voice in my head kept saying, you were wrong about his feelings for at least ten, for the last 10 years at CAA. He handled you beautifully then. So it makes you certain you're right now. Part of me wanted to believe in his sincerity and the promise of our old friendship. Part of me was still angry. Part of me felt sorry for him. Part of me felt sorry for both of us. Still, we began talking three times a week easing toward a renewal of our intimacy. I had missed it so. And now he's going to extend this. He says to somebody else, he says, that same reconciling impulse made me reach out to David Geffen. Remember, that's the guy that he said he threatened to beat him up and he accused of being part of a gay mafia. We met at Morea in New York, shook hands, and had a civil lunch. He told me, my biggest problem with you is that I tried to be your friend and you wouldn't be friends with me. The old me would have argued, would have objected that that wasn't the whole story. But I just said, you're right. I was there to make peace. And David said he wanted the same. We were two guys in our 70s looking to fix what we had broken. Ronnie later told me that David didn't have anything bad to say about me afterward. That made me smile a little. The win nowadays is breaking even, but I'll take it. So... You're seeing a lot of personal growth from him. And this is where I'll close. And at the end of the day, it is all about the people. Even for tough people like Mike that don't want to outwardly show it, um, it in private moments of reflection, and in his case, in the at the end of his autobiography, he admits as much. So he talks about the fact that he still owns the building the CIA was in and that he, he went by there the other day. Now he's over 70. He hadn't been in the company, you know, for 30, almost 30, 25 years, whatever the time frame is. And he's, he's reflecting here. And I think this is uh, an important lesson for us to understand and kind of internalize so, so we don't miss out on this. The building felt drained. 
empty not as not just of the old bustle, but of the magic, the power. It felt small. It felt like your childhood house does when you go back as an adult. When we first inhabited the building, the whole mighty team of us, we were giants. I was hit by the magnitude of what I'd done in that building, and it seemed kind of amazing. This kid from the valley, with no stature, no tenure, no network to rely on, reshaped the entertainment business. In my empty fortress, I realized that I wasn't out of the valley yet. I'm free of it in my daily life, but I'll never be free of it in my brain. You carry your origins with you. Still, those origins drove me here and built this place and attracted so many bright, funny, creative colleagues. In the silence, I discovered that the only thing I really miss about the agency business was the camaraderie, my comrades and friends, and the passionate way we spent our lives together. I miss the people. And that is where I will leave this story. If you want the full story, I'd recommend reading the book. There's a ton of interesting anecdotes all about, I mean, people you would know, famous celebrities and stuff that, that I left out. Um, so before we go, I just want to remind you that I just presented this entire podcast ad-free. Um, as a podcast fan myself, I feel that's the best experience for the listener. And then if I do the best experience for the listener, uh, it'd be the best thing for the podcast. Um, so this podcast is ad-free and independent, which means I rely on the support of the people who get value from this podcast. Uh, recently, I had somebody, uh, few, two, actually two people email me, which I think was good ideas. Um, with a, They want a way to be able to support on a per-podcast basis. So in other words, if you listen to this whole podcast and you thought I, there was, you got value out of it, um, please consider, uh, do, I hate using the word donate, but sending me $2.00. $2 is my suggested amount, but you can send whatever you want. The link is in the show notes uh, that's available on your podcast player uh, where you can just, uh, where you can donate right there. It's also available at founderspodcast.com by tapping on the dollar sign in the header. So that's for people that have expressed interest to basically pay for whichever podcast they really like. Um, and so that's the option. If you want to support podcasts on a monthly basis, um, you can become a misfit, and you get extra. Uh, you can get access to my private podcast feed, which you'll immediately unlock. You'll immediately unlock 17 podcasts that I've done, and you'll get an extra podcast for me for every week. So it's up to you how you want to choose to support the podcast. All I ask is that if you're getting value from my work, um, and you want to see more stuff like this, more independent podcasts that are not littered with ads, that are not disrupting our time together uh, by trying to sell you a bunch of stuff that you don't need, frankly. Um, please consider supporting. It's the best way to explicitly state that, hey, I, I like what you're doing and I want to see more of this. And it's up to you. Do it on a one-time basis uh, for per each podcast that you listen to um, or uh, on a monthly basis if you just want to set it up one time and forget it. Um, other than that, I've talked an, un unbelievable long, an unbelievably long time today. Uh, so I thank you very much for your support. Please tell a friend about it about this podcast, share it on social media if you want to, and I will be back next week with another biography of an entrepreneur. Thank you very much. Bye.